Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Dr. Barbara Oakley. Barbara is a professor of engineering, a writer, and instructor of the world's largest online class, Learning How to Learn, with nearly 2 million registered students. The course is based on her best-selling book, A Mind for Numbers. Barb's work focuses on the complex relationship between neuroscience and social behavior, and her latest book, Mind Shift, Break Through Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential, I think is sure to become another big hit. Welcome, Barbara. Miriam, it's so nice to be here. <laughs> you know, you have had such an amazing life path. You rising from private to captain in the U.S. Army, working as a communications expert at the South Pole Station in Antarctica, serving as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers, and then you went from hating math to becoming elected a fellow of the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering and teaching an online course that is absolutely mind-boggling. Do you really think that we all have that kind of hidden potential just waiting to be awakened? I think that we all have enormous hidden potential in directions that I can't even imagine. I think that's that's the thing is we often sort of unwittingly box ourselves in at, at what we think we're good at and what we're capable of. And the reality is we can often do far, far more than we might ever believe. We can change more than we ever might believe. Well, I know that there is this kind of hidden tape that we run in our heads that has been added to over our lifetime, that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, you can't do this, I'm bad at math. I'm not creative, and so on. And you have found ways of getting around that. What are some of the approaches? That is a really good question. I think one of the, one of the things that I finally began to realize was an asset for me, I always thought it was a bad thing, but it was actually a good thing, was that I felt like a fake who wasn't really good enough, that I couldn't really do these things. And psychologists will say, no, 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 you shouldn't feel that way. You should feel more confident. Obviously, you're there because you're good enough and so forth. But to my mind, sort of realizing that your your feelings of imposterhood, that you're not quite good enough, <laughs> are, are that they're actually valuable. Because what happens is you begin looking at whatever you're doing with a sort of a beginner's eye. You're actually really paying attention to what it takes to do and succeed at what you're, you're wanting to succeed at. And sometimes that can get you well past the people who are confidently sort of overconfident in their capabilities because you're you're capable of self-doubt, and that that can be a valuable asset. You give a lot of uh, case histories in your book of people that you've met uh, somewhere along the path 
who have done exactly that. They've taken what they thought was their uh, deficiency and worked on it so hard that they've actually become more creative and um, more useful, really, to their workplace than uh, other people who have a lot more self-confidence. Um, give us you, you have that example of the chap from Singapore. Can you explain what he did? Oh, yes. So this is uh, referring to a fellow named Adam Koo, who is, he was terrible growing up. I mean, he was just a, a wild child, couldn't pay attention in school, was flunking everything. He was just really uh, a problematic kid on his way fast to nowhere. And now he is, well, he became one of Singapore's uh, youngest millionaires. Uh, he's an entrepreneur who runs uh, workshops to help students learn how to learn more effectively, uh, often by, by using mental tricks and tools so that kids who are like him can also be successful. And what he did was he he doesn't have a good working memory. And that was, I think, part of his problem. And that's actually a problem for a lot of us. I mean, like for me, mm -hmm. you can give me uh, somebody's phone number and I'll be like repeating it, you know, so I'm trying to remember what it is. And then, you know, I just get distracted. Oh, shiny. And then the phone number will just <laughs> fall out of my working memory. And so uh -huh. what, Adam Koo did was he learned to use some mnemonics some or some memory palace type tricks, ways of memorizing more effectively. And we're now learning from neuroscience that if you use some of these seeming memory tricks, like the memory palace, where you visualize sort of maybe a comfortable room in your house that you're very familiar with, and you place items memorably uh, that you're trying to remember around that room, you can walk around that room subsequently and kind of pick those items up and that in your mind at least, and that can help you recall all sorts of things from grocery lists to uh, parts of an equation and so forth. So this is a really powerful mental technique that's always been kind of discounted because memory was thought to be um, sort of antithetical to creativity. Well, latest neuroscience research is showing that if you use this memory palace technique, it, it builds your neural circuits of memory and it also is simultaneously building default mode networks, the parts of your brain that are associated with creativity. So, so what Adam kind of stumbled across was how to use different tricks to help him to learn better, to be more successful in school. And so even though he didn't have a steel trap working memory like a lot of the other kids he was competing against, he could use these tricks to still excel. And that turned his life around. He, he ended up going to the National University of Singapore, which is Singap one of the top universities in the world. And uh, it, it's, um, it's an enormous example, I think a valuable example for all of us about how 
you may not have the same capabilities as someone you're competing against or entire groups you're competing against. But even so, if you figure out some little mental tricks, you can still not only be successful, but you can actually be more creative than they can be. Mm-hmm. And it's not to discount the importance of hard work, but so many of us never even start because we kind of give up before uh, we we start. We think we'll never be able to do it. But once you have that uh, vision, that encouragement that you can do it, you know, then you have to put in the work. Um, Speaking of which, uh, you combined forces with a fascinating neuroscientist who himself had a fascinating story. I mean, this whole book is just chock-a-block with so many fascinating insights. So tell us about Terry Sengnowski and um, your uh, learning how to learn class uh, and the whole notion of MOOCs. I mean, that was a whole world opening to me. MOOC, M-O-O-C. M-O-O-C, that's right. And that stands for Massive Open Online Course. And essentially these are college or college subject related courses that are often free or very low cost. And you you can take these courses to learn about anything. And it's it, it's such a revolution because they can be they can be super fun. It's like having a really nice teacher who's who's also very funny walking you through the the information. It's in a lot of ways easier than reading a book because you have the teacher right there sort of, sort of giving you the mm-hmm. cliff notes version of what you're learning. But how this all started really was thanks to Terry Sanowski. And Terry is, or I mean, at least the, the work that I do with learning how to learn as, as one of the world's, uh, as a very popular MOOC. And Terry is, he is a legendary neuroscientist. He's one of only 10 living human beings who's simultaneously a member of all three U.S. national academies. And we decided uh, after, you know, I wrote the book, uh, um, A Mind for Numbers, that the the MOOC, the Massive Open Online Course, is based on. And then Terry and I decided to make the MOOC based on this. And Mm -hmm. it was astonishingly fun uh but i i so i have to laugh though because once i was invited to harvard uh to speak about the mooc and i i was this nervous wreck you know because i'm just this <laughs> midwestern engineer that invited to the bastions of harvard and uh so it turned out oh, to dear. be very very interesting very interesting and very rewarding in terms of the connections. And you were a star. Barbara, we have such a little bit of time to cover what is such a rewarding book. Um, I have a vested interest in one of the chapters, which is talking about being able to learn at any age. Um, tell us how learning affects um 
mental alertness and really is a great way to avoid Alzheimer's. Well, studies, correlational studies have shown that the more you're involved in education and learning, uh, sort of continuing on through your life, the lower your risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. And there's very good evidence that continuing to learn through your lifetime keeps sparking those new neural patterns that that do several things. Number one, they, they keep you out of this sort of mental rut. Everyone's met older individuals who sort of can't think in new ways. But if you're learning new things, that helps to keep you flexibly nimble in, in your thinking. And it also, it, it helps it helps you to be a fun person to be around because you've got intriguing new things to be discussing. And that's that's always a nice thing when you're interacting with others. So I, I think that spending, there's just great research evidence that learning new things, really kind of digging into to getting something new that stretches you a little bit, is every bit as good for you as exercising. So you do a little exercising every day, and likewise, if you have, you integrate some learning every day into your lifestyle, it helps to make you healthier. And there's clear evidence that, especially as you're aging, some of those neurons and those neural connections do die off. But if if you're learning new things, you've got this sort of cognitive reserve. You've got extra connections that you're building at the same time, and that helps keep you healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of use it or lose it. And you did <laughs> also stress the importance of, of exercise. Um, in fact, basically any excuse that you can give yourself for not learning, not using your mind, you have an answer for in your book. I just, I love that. Um, Getting back to the using the brain, you talked about a program that was developed at, I think, uh, University of California uh, called NeuroRacer. Tell us about that. Oh, that's um, developed by Adam Gazzali and his group. Um, at uh, UC uh, uh, San Francisco, and this was actually written up in Nature as one of the first potential games that may get uh, approval from uh, approval from the FDA as a treatment to help with uh, cognitive decline. And what these kinds of games can do, and in, in fact, more generally, some um, action-style video games can help increase your attentional capabilities. They actually, they seem to improve your eyesight. We always used to think, oh, video games are just bad for you. They're like trash for your brain. And But it's actually completely the contrary, at least for some of those action style video games. And even games like uh, Tetris can help build your, your visual and geometric and spatial capabilities. So um, so video games can be really good for you. Uh, there's a, a great game called Brain HQ, or a, a sort of a gaming system. And Brain HQ 
has some good research. It's it's built on some um, work that was begun by Mike Merzenich, and he's one of the top um, neuroscientists in the country. So it's um, it's very well based on science, and it may not, you know, build your working memory and really make it bigger. There's certain sort of set limits. Uh, we can't really vary a whole lot with uh, with those kinds of interventions, but it can increase your attentional abilities and, and do a lot of other things that can help help you retain and even improve on uh, your cognitive abilities overall. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to the other end of the age spectrum. And I was fascinated by the case study that you gave of Singapore and how they encourage second skilling. Um, I think that would be a good topic to cover. Oh, when I was getting my own um, heading for my career originally, I trained as an army linguist. So I learned Russian, that was my skill. And then I got out the wor working place and guess what? Not very many people needed my skill. So um, <laughs> Singapore has this they great might nowadays. idea. Uh, oh, maybe, uh, but you only have a very few people or, or groups that you can work with. And if you don't want to work with them, then you're kind of stuck. <laughs> but uh, but in any case, um, so uh, what what happened was, um, it, well, what Singapore has done is they advocate this approach called second skilling. And what you're doing is you're building sort of a second capability. So you wouldn't just put all your career eggs in one basket, like with me with Russian, you would maybe work in a background where you're getting some coding capabilities or marketing. And this is a lot easier to do with massive open online courses, which are very convenient. Some of the, the providers, for example, Coursera, it, they even will walk you through what what are you trying to learn and why and and provide a a sort of a template to help you figure out how to learn the kinds of things you want to learn in order to either enhance or change your career. Mm -hmm. What I found so fascinating was that in Singapore, they actually have regular gatherings between government, trade unions, and and who's the, who's the third party, Barbara, where they discuss uh, it, uh, the needs of the oh, government, government. Um, discuss yeah. the needs so, and, and develop, right. uh, go on, yeah. So it's uh, the unions, the government, and private business all kind of come together in this sort of tripartite system. So unlike in the U.S., say, where um, uh, unions might be counter to, uh, you know, their their at odds with business, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so they might, I mean, imagine what could happen if they both sort of sat down at the table together and said, you know, what's really best for us if we want to grow the pie instead of just grab part of the pie for us? And that's more of the kind of approach that Singapore takes is, hey, let's all sit down at the table together and, and figure out a best way to work things. 
Now, is it a perfect system uh, where everyone's truly independent from uh, one another? Not really, but it does make for um, a, a system that works better and some, and in some cases much better than systems in other countries. Uh, Singapore mm -hmm. itself, uh, one of the things that Singaporeans love to do is complain. And so you'll rarely find a <laughs> Singaporean who, who well, it's, you know, part of it is just because they're so, they're just so dynamic and so um, filled not only with the capability or the potential of things, but also with the unpotential of some things. But uh, but the reality is you can go walking around at 2 o'clock in the morning in downtown Singapore and, you know, you can have your, your child walking around and, and they're safe there. And there, there's, there's some real, um, some very good things that I think even Singaporeans can tend to overlook. Well, you did point out that they went down from something like 50% unemployment to about 2% unemployment uh, in, in no small part due to this kind of attitude towards retraining people rather than uh, just putting them on the rubbish heap. So that's right. That, um, that's made a, a huge difference. It's easy to say, well, Singapore has some kind of magic and they deserved it and they're but if you look at many of the countries around them who who were who were spun off from the British Empire as well but haven't done nearly as well as Singapore, clearly they're doing some some things very, very right. And um it's not to say again that it's a perfect country. Um there there are problems especially with with testing that that can be brutal on young people. Um, there, there's efforts being made to, to try to reduce that, um, that competitive uh, feeling that, mm -hmm. that could put such pressure on children. Um, but I think no matter how societies evolve, there are always some good things that you can uh, emulate from them and others that they may want to be working on themselves. But certainly, as far as second skilling, there's there's a lot of intelligent uh, sort of building in of infrastructure, at least along the lines of learning and and trying to help the society there to realize the importance of second skilling and lifelong learning. And I think that's something that could definitely um, be useful in many other countries, including the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Barbara, you, you gave a, uh, you have many wonderful references in your book, but one of them was kind of an overview of the kind of MOOCs that are available. It was class hyphen something or other. Oh, this is um, a wonderful website called classcentral.com. And what Class Central does is it will class hyphen go in Central. there and... Yeah. That's right. And if you type it in, it'll come right up. And I mean, if you are a fan of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of Little House on the Prairie, you'll find a MOOC on Laura Ingalls Wilder. And of course, 
MOOCs on all sorts of uh, subjects, from psychology to <laughs> statistics to coding. It's and what's nice about that website is you can go and see the reviews that people have have written about different courses, and that can give you a good indication of whether that's right for you. Oh dear, we're all uh, through our our session. Oh, we were speaking with Barbara Oakley about her book Mindshift. And remember, just reading three hours a week will do, be, do wonders for your brain. So start with MindShift. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. And welcome back. We have our next guest, Brian Kateman, with us. Brian is the editor of the Reducitarian Solution, and he's co-founder and president of the Reducitarian Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to reducing meat consumption to create a healthy, sustainable, and compassionate world. He's a TEDx speaker and leading expert on food systems and behavioral change and an instructor in the executive education program at the Earth Institute Center for Environmental Sustainability at Columbia University. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, I'm delighted that you could make it. Now, the long title of your book is The Reducitarian Solution, How the Surprisingly Simple Act of Reducing the Amount of Meat in Your Diet Can Transform Your Health and the Planet. So how did you come up with the name Reducitarian, and how is it different from all the other Aryans? Sure. Well, a reducitarian is someone who's interested in reducing the amount of animal products in their diet. And uh, for me, this is really a, a personal experience. You know, when I was in college, I was that guy on campus who was encouraging people to recycle and take shorter showers um, and do all sorts of other environmental <laughs> actions that they, that they can do to improve the planet. But it wasn't until later in college that I made the link between conventional animal agriculture and many of the environmental issues that I cared about. You know, when we think about um, climate change, what we're really talking about is greenhouse gas emissions. And when we're talking about human health problems, we're often talking about heart disease and cancer and diabetes. And when we think about animals that are suffering, we sometimes think about dogs and cats and other pets. But most animals are actually suffering on factory farms where they're kept in incredibly cruel conditions. And, and all of this, all these issues come down to meat, come down to meat consumption. And so when I learned this, it really just blew my mind. And um, I said, you know what, I want to be a vegetarian because I want to align my values with my actions. And so I tried that out later in college, and that went really well. I mean, I felt good. I was happy. But the problem was... I wasn't always perfect about it. There were instances, social situations, where it was hard for me to be, quote-unquote, perfect. I remember one Thanksgiving with my family um, eating a piece of turkey, and I remember my sister sort of taking a moment, as siblings will do, to shout across the table. She said, I thought you were a vegetarian, Brian, sort of catching me in the act. And I explained uh, in that moment that you know every single plant-based meal we have is one that's healthier and more environmentally friendly and compassionate typically than a factory farmed um, meat meal. 
and that it wasn't all or nothing, that you didn't have to be perfect in order to contribute to these issues. And so I said, you know what, I'm tired of being called a lazy vegetarian or a cheating vegetarian. I wanted to come up with a positive positive spin um, on this and really recognize that, you know, it didn't have to be an all-or-nothing premise. And words like flexitarian and semi-vegetarian, they also get at this idea that you can significantly reduce the amount of animal products you consume, and that's a great idea. But those words describe people who primarily eat plant-based meals, meaning they just occasionally eat animal products. But I wanted to come up with a word that described anyone who was reducing the amount of meat that they consume. So the average American, for example, eats 200 pounds of meat a year. And so if I could tell that person, hey, you know what, you should consider becoming a reducetarian, cut back 10% or 20% of meat in your diet, that person will still be consuming a lot of meat relative to a flexitarian or semi-vegetarian, certainly to a vegetarian vegan. But they're going to be making a positive step in a, in a good direction that's good for their health and the planet and the well-being of animals. And so that was really the inspiration for coming up with the term reducitarian. And ever since, I've been on a mission to spread that idea that people should consider eating less meat, but that it doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing premise. Mm-hmm. I should say that this book is a collection of essays uh, kind of grouped around the body, mind, body, health, and planet, or uh, something like that. Um, the emotional impact of factory farming and animal suffering is certainly one big thing, although when you go into the supermarket and everything is nicely cut up and shrink-wrapped and all that, you're not thinking of where it came from. Um, let's talk about the way that all of the pieces are linked together, because this is one of the things that we don't connect the dots on, how eating less meat can really um, lead to um, reducing greenhouse gases, water runoff, pesticide use, feeding more people. Um, okay, I've just said it. Pick your favorite essay and go with it. Oh, my goodness, that's tough. I love, I love so many of the essays. You know, I, I think what this book does is it asks the question, why do we eat so much meat in the first place? How does eating mm-hmm. this, this much meat impact our planet and all these different ways that you've just mentioned? And ultimately, what can you do about it? You know, I think people um, think that uh, that we choose food based on ethics or environmental reasons or, you know, other, other kind of pro-social motives. But the average person just, just chooses food based on price, on convenience, and on taste. And to an extent, social norms, what other people are eating around them. And so a lot of the essays look at some of the, the factors that make meat, for example, artificially cheap. You know, there's a, there's a really great essay um, at, the, the, at the beginning of the book um, by my colleague uh, David Robinson Simon, who talks about the bizarre forces that drive people to eat too much meat. Um, essentially, you know, if we paid what meat is actually worth, meaning if you consider the environmental cost or the human health cost or the animal welfare cost, you know, your, your typical hamburger that might cost a dollar or two dollars could cost three or four or five times that amount. 
And so um, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about the, the book and that it addresses all of these, these various issues. And, you know, when we think about need, it's so disconnected from us just at the supermarket, as you said, and we don't think about the fact that we had to clear land in order to grow the food that we would then feed to animals and that clearing that land would lead to, um, you know, biodiversity loss because the animal, the wild animals that live there can no longer live there anymore. And, you know, transporting these products will increase the greenhouse gas emissions and that, you know, the animals themselves that are being reared in these incredibly cruel conditions are sentient beings that experience pain and, and pleasure just like us. And there are 7 billion them, 7 billion land animals in the United States every year that are slaughtered for food. And, you know, I think of my parents um, who, when I tell them that they should eat less meat, you know, they are most excited about improving their health. You know, I tell them, hey, I want you to be around for a long time. And, um, you know, telling them they're going to, hey, you're going to decrease your risk of heart disease, you know, perhaps by even 10% or 20%. If you just incorporate more plant-based foods into your diet, um, that's a, a really compelling argument for them. And so the, the many different essays look at these issues and really show that no matter what your motivation is for eating less meat or no matter what degree you would like to reduce your meat consumption, whether by 10% or 20% or 50% or more, we're all part of this movement, this, this conscious awakening that we can't have a system of, of factory farms that are polluting our planet and, and hurting animals and, uh, and all the other issues that go along with that, that, that system. One of the things that people tend to forget in terms of health is that whether it's a plant uh, or an animal, these are simply ways of conveying the sun's energy into our bodies and eating lower on the totem pole uh, is a more direct route. It has more uh, a greater variety of nutrients and less uh, toxic burden that it has accumulated on the way. Um, what do you feel is the role of politics in uh, the, the the preponderance of meat in our diet? Well, I think you're absolutely right. You know, plant-based foods are, in, are incredibly nutrient-dense and there's a lot of mis- misinformation around, um, you know, where where to get your nutrients. You know, pr- the protein myth is a common one. Often, omnivores interested in eating less meat will say, well, how do you get protein? And the truth is that, you know, most people are eating two or three times as much protein as they actually need. And simply eating, you know, more beans or tofu or nuts would allow you to have all the, the protein that you need. And uh, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, in terms of the, the politics, you know, there's, there's a lot of politics at play because meat is a profitable business. You know, we're looking at the, the factory farming contributes to, I think, around $200 billion in profits every year. And so, of course, there's going to be a lot of politics. And I think the subsidy is, is a great example that all, all of these uh, resources that go into rearing these animals are subsidized. And so the factory farms are not paying for what they actually should be paying. Instead, the consumers are paying for it. We may not be paying for it in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, right at the market, but we're certainly paying it for in healthcare bills and other other uh, other costs. And so, and in water cleanup, are, yeah, exactly right. The environmental costs, um, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, politics is a is a huge part of it. 
And that's why we need our citizens to, you know, not only eat less meat, but become active voices and standing up against factory farms. And, you know, for example, there was a recent ballot measure in Massachusetts that passed, and it simply asked that we give chickens and other animals more space, that they not be locked up and, and confined in these terrible conditions. And that, that ballot passed. And now, for example, battery cages can no longer be used in Massachusetts. And that was the result of citizens recognizing that you know, factory farming is, is, is not a good thing for us or for the planet or for animals. And you know, I think there was a, a huge politics in there and, and trying to convince people otherwise, but ultimately the, the people stood up to what I think is right. So um, um, absolutely, uh, politics is a huge part of it. And it's not just the emotional uh, tug on the heart about these poor creatures in feedlots or cages, but they actually uh, secrete stress hormones into their system. So when they are uh, slaughtered, those hormones are conveyed to us. So there, there are really very far-reaching implications of the the need to do better by by God's creatures. Um, that's a that's a great point. I mean, seventy percent of antibiotics that are used are are used in on factory farms. It's just astounding to me that that number. And you know, because are, animals are stressed, and then they get their immune system is impacted. They get sick, and mm-hmm. that's why they need the antibiotics. Same with that's fish right. farming. Yep, that's absolutely right. And you know, I, the, I think older generations, if they ate meat 50 or 60 years ago, it, it, it didn't didn't taste like this. You know, it probably tasted a lot better. The end was probably a lot healthier for people because it they, because and it was a very so much. Mm-hmm. absolutely, and it was a very expensive part of your um, your weekly shopping budget, and you mm-hmm. used meat in small quantities. You combined it with with beans and potatoes and pasta in order to stretch it so you got the flavor of meat, but um, you didn't get the vast quantity. It's really uh, been turned on its head. Anyway, we will get back to this after our break. We're speaking with Brian Caitman about the Reducitarian Solution. Brian, you have a foundation. Tell us about it. Yeah, sure. Um, the, my nonprofit is the Reducitarian Foundation, what we do is uh, educate the general public on the value of eating less meat with respect to their own diet and try and remove some of these myths around plant-based eating. Um, one, that it's not all or nothing. You don't necessarily have to be a vegan or a vegetarian, though that's a great way to reduce consumption of animal products. And that, you know, plant-based meals can be also delicious, I think, is part of what we're trying to show and, and part, I think, our recipes in the book um, do that. But we have lots of different initiatives. Part of them are running online uh, campaigns on social media and other advertising uh, areas. Uh, we're in the process now of, of creating a documentary that we hope will reach millions of people with our message and educate people further. And we also create programs that bring the community together. You know, there are all of these different reasons why people are working toward a, a planet where there are fewer animal products produced. And this is for, like you said, environmental or animal welfare, human health reasons. And there are people who are working toward a vegan world or a vegetarian world or a less meat world. But at the end of the day, we're all on the same team. We're all part of this movement of people who are against factory farms 
and are interested in reducing consumption of these products. And so one of the upcoming uh, activities that I'm most excited about is our conference in New York City on May 20th and 21st. And what we're going to be doing is bringing together all of the leaders of the Reducitarian Movement, all of the NGOs and for-profit organizations that are working in this space to identify ways where we can collaborate even further and to, uh, deploy strategies that effectively reduce societal meat consumption. And so between all of these engagement and education programs, we're committed to reducing societal consumption of animal products and hope to push that message and movement forward. I see this as very much a part of the new consciousness, which is understanding the impact of our choices on the whole, on the planet, on everyone on it. And it's very analogous to reducing our uh, consumption of uh, petroleum products uh, and mm -hmm. other um, ways of being conscious of what we do every day. Um, the to statistics in your book were were impressive. Um, the descriptions in the book were graphic. Um, you had a couple of ways of kind of easing into the notion of reducitarianism, like Meatless Mondays. Give us some of your favorite ways. Yeah, sure. Well, certainly veganism and vegetarian is a great way to go, but there's other strategies. And so some of my favorites are Meatless Monday, where you abstain from eating meat on Monday, which is a very easy one. It's one that my parents like a lot. I think that's a great entry point for people to get started. Obviously, Monday comes around every time uh, of the week. And so if you're uh, falling, you know, if you skip a week or if you forget, it's a nice reminder um, to, to try partaking again on Monday. You can try Mark Bittman's uh, Vegan Before Six. And Mark Bittman wrote the forward for the book. And Vegan Before Six is just like it sounds. You eat a plant-based meal for breakfast and lunch. And afterwards, such as for dinner, it's your choice. You could try Graham Hill's strategy, um, which is to be a weekday vegetarian, where during the week you eat plant-based meals, but on the weekend it's your choice. Um, there's, uh, I like the deck of cards strategy, which is that essentially whenever you eat meat, you will only eat meat the size of a deck of cards, kind of like how we were talking about earlier in the show that Perhaps our grandparents, when they ate meat, it would have been much smaller quantities. It would have cost a lot more money. And so just by simply reducing the amount of meat in a single meal is going to be a great strategy. For example, if you want to have um, pasta bolognese, you can do that. But perhaps have it be a very small amount of meat sauce such that it just flavors the meal rather than it being the center of it. I think all of these strategies are, are really great because they're structured enough that they help people – um, uh, remember and commit to it in such a way that, you know, just won't completely slip the mind, but it's also flexible. I mean, what we're trying to do is remove the guilt. There's so much guilt associated with our, with our choices because we know that every choice we make has some impact on our health or on the planet. And what we're trying to say is, you know what, you don't have to be perfect. You can simply view each meal as a choice, as an opportunity to make a healthier, uh, more environmentally friendly or compassionate choice, and it's not all or nothing. And I think people gravitate toward that message far more than they will to shaming or some other kind of strategy. And so that's what we're really about um, at the Reduced Trying Foundation. And I think 
throughout, we examine the seriousness of many of these issues. Of course, in the book we do, but we do so in a way where it's meant to educate and it's not meant to guilt people into anything that they're not comfortable doing. I think that that's a great approach, even as regards diet in general. There's a lot of confusion as to what's the best diet. You know, the, the paleo diet has been misinterpreted to think that you have to have a, a half-pound slab of meat with a few mm-hmm. greens on top. And it really is getting everything in balance for yourself, for your health, for the planet. So um, you mentioned some recipes in the book. Do you have a favorite recipe? Ooh, um, I love the recipes in our book. They're vegan, vegetarian, and some of them have even less meat recipes with some of these small amounts of of animal products in a particular dish. I have to tell you, when I was transitioning to eating more plant-based meals, the the food that I really loved was buffalo wings. I guess for some reason, the, the, maybe because I grew up eating them all the time um, at barbecues and other places, and I really wanted a healthier version because obviously buffalo wings is not the best uh, meal in terms of all the issues that we're talking about. And so I worked with Pat Crocker, who is an award-winning chef, on creating a really delicious buffalo cauliflower recipe. And I love the idea that instead of chicken, it's cauliflower, but it still has that icy, flavorful kind of sensation that um, a typical um, um, buffalo wing dish might. You know, the recipes that I enjoy the most are the ones that are simple. I, I tell people all the time, you know, you don't have to complicate it by having exotic ingredients or ingredients you can't pronounce or don't know how to use. You can simply make the meals you're used to and just switch it up a little. And so, for example, if you have a beef burrito, just have a veggie burrito, just put peppers and onions and other vegetables in it, or, or guacamole, for example. If you enjoy having Thai food, you know, instead of having um, chicken and your pad thai, instead you can have tofu. And so um, many of the recipes are meant to model that kind of behavior because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all stressed. We all don't have too much time. And um, for many people, this is a new way to be thinking about food. And so we wanted to make it as easy and convenient and ultimately as delicious as possible because that's ultimately what's going to bring people to food is it's how good it tastes. That's why we all eat at the end of the day. I took a bit of an issue with some of the recommendations in the book for substituting soy products because so many soy products are actually based on GMO um, soybeans. And Mm. they do have uh, uh, phytoestrogenic properties, so they probably are not your best solution for children. Um, Like anything, you have to educate yourself and um, see what works for you. But I think this is a, a really good step in the right direction. What kind of response have you had? When is the book coming out, Brian? The book is out April 18th, so just uh, a week from now. Uh-huh. Right. And, oh, oh, just in time for Earth Day. That's right. Very good. And um, what what response have you had from uh, people that have had an early read to it? I think people love it and that they're really excited about it. You know, I think vegans and vegetarians like it because it's, 
extremely educational, even for people who are familiar with this topic. I mean, there were countless things that surprised me as I was reading along. I mean, just as an example, there's a really great essay by Anastasia about how the military actually has influenced meat, in part because when we were sending soldiers um, during World War One and World War Two, it was, it was thought to be very important to feed them a lot of meat, a pound a day. And so there was an effort to reconstitute meat such that it was cheaper and easier to transport. And that, in part, led to innovations around some of the processed meats that we see, some of which you can see at places like McDonald's and Burger King today. Um, um, and so um, I think that, that's and really exciting you have, that there mm-hmm. You also have a, some fascinating essays about um, plant-based meat uh, substitutes, you know, growing meat in a test tube. Um, yeah, the, and, the future of food is, it. is mm-hmm. yeah, the future of food is really exciting. You know, we're seeing innovations and really making plant-based products that are familiar um, uh, to people, but are mm-hmm. um, are plant-based, and so that you know, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and some of these other companies are really innovating um, plant-based products. And of course, there's also cultured meat. The idea that you can take meat from a, a cell, uh, sorry, you can take a cell from an animal and you can put it in a nutrient-rich environment and grow it, and eventually it would actually turn out to meat that is meat. It just doesn't require the animal. Um, That's a very far distant future. Um, But, yeah, there's there's (laughs) lots of stuff in this book for everyone. (laughs) Indeed. Well, fascinating topic. Uh, We were speaking with Brian Cateman about the reducitarian solution. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. And join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.